name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The epistle that we read from St. Paul is crucial to our understanding of the figure of the Virgin Mary. The figure of the Virgin Mary, who historically has figured so powerfully and so vividly in the lives of Christians, scriptural Christians, but who as a result of the many errors of the Protestant reformers of the 16th century became almost an embarrassment because, yes, of certain excesses and mistakes that were uh, prevalent and flourishing in the uh, heretical West, but nonetheless the reformers with all of their uh, satisfaction that they had returned to biblical Christianity in missing the Virgin Mary, and indeed the saints missed one of the main parts, one of the main components of biblical Christianity. St. Paul, who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, understands very well through all that rich uh, symbolism of the Old Testament, how the Virgin Mary is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, just as the Savior is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. Without the Virgin Mary, we do not have Christ. It's as simple as that. And this, of course, is the massive contradiction of that Western Christianity that finds its main mentor in Augustine, who does not understand that God does not act without man, that God does not act to uh, overcome man. To put it in bald language, God loves man, he does not rape man. Man must cooperate. God is synergistic because man is synergistic because God is synergistic. The God-man relationship rests on the capacity of man to respond and cooperate with God. The teaching of the West is both terse and harsh. God, if he predestines you for heaven, is going to drag you there by your hair, kicking and screaming whether you want it or not. The famous Western dogma of irresistible grace. One of the major uh, pillars on which Augustinianism rests its case. Hence Father Schmemann, Father Alexander Schmemann's remark about the profound anthropological pessimism of the West and the equally profound anthropological optimism of the Church. The Virgin Mary contradicts this whole line in the West and no wonder the West had to get rid of her. Since the way in which she functions within the life of Christians and within the doctrinal system, if there is a system, of Orthodox Christianity, the way that she functions within the structure of the Church, the faith of the Church, there is no way that one of the most precious and core elements in the West could possibly survive. So St. Paul gives us the, the powerful linkage back into the depths of the Old Testament, 
Thus we say that the Virgin Mary is the last of the great women of the Old Testament and the first of the great women of the New Testament. With the Gospel of Luke that we always read for all of the feasts of the Theotokos, we begin significantly with Martha and Mary, the other Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Christ in this Gospel has already come and is already in the midst of his earthly ministry as an adult. Christ functions within a given society. He speaks a certain language. There are certain rules and regulations down to the least uh, important areas of human life which govern this occupied theocracy of first century Israel. And so he, a man, he, a rabbi, and a celebrated one, comes to visit the home of three siblings, Martha and Mary and Lazarus in Bethany. And we were in Bethany. And we know that when a young man, a rabbi, comes into the home, certain things must happen. It's expected. It is the right way to do things. If you've ever been in Greece or in the Middle East and you've visited a home, something of that same uh, process has been viewed by you. Certain things are brought to you and set before you, certain traditional foods and drinks, and you are seated, and certain things are said to you, and your responses are, in a sense, clichés. They are the things that people say under the circumstances. I stress this because what Martha is doing, as far as we can tell from the laconic text, is fulfilling the expectations that society has trained her to fulfill. To put it in our terms, she runs out into the kitchen, she gets the servants busy with setting out trays of traditional guest food, pouring drinks of guest beverages, and is here and there, hither and yon, and she is in need of help. Who is going to help in a house like this? Lazarus? Of course not. He's a male. When Father Simon and I went for Christmas to Akhrata, the village south of Athens, we were not invited to help out in the kitchen or to help set the table or to pour the wine. There were women, and the women did the task. So, Martha comes to find her sister, and she finds her. She finds her doing what? From the point of view of Martha, she finds her doing nothing, just sitting there, as we, with our good Calvinist-based uh, American work ethic society, uh, would, would have said along with Martha. She's, she's someone we can latch onto. Would you please tell my sister to, well, to get up and to help me? Now, so far, Martha is on strong ground. She has the character of the society on her side. And here, 
the man who has triggered this bustle of activity in the pantry and in the kitchen and in the foyer and all of that will undoubtedly, with a gentle smile, advise Mary that it's time to go and help her sister Martha. And that clearly is Martha's expectation. Now, stop and think. Frame this set, this scene. Does Martha not love the Lord? Is that the point? No, of course not. Everything that Martha is bustling around doing out in the pantry, in the kitchen, and getting things ready, has to do with concrete expressions of not only her respect, her affection for the visitor, but her love for him. And she is expressing her love in practical, albeit traditional ways. And this is where God does what he was doing always in the Old Testament by <laughs> choosing the second son. <laughs> you know, God who sets up the rule of primogeniture, he who was born first is the eldest son and inherits and is the Lord and Master and so on and so forth, all of that, and then turns around and spends the rest of the Old Testament breaking his own rule. And here again, God acts against the grain. He cuts across the grain of social expectations. And let's understand that word social here. Social meaning sanctified. We say social in a, an utterly, not only depraved and paganized world, but an utterly secularized world which has di driven God out from practically all aspects of human life, especially daily human life, except that little compartment where we allow him still to rent some space. Not much. Another great fruit of the Protestant Reformation. Christ says, Martha, Martha, thou art anxious, addressing the fact that you and I have anxieties. Thou art anxious and troubled about many things. Much serving in some translations. Only one thing is necessary. And it is Mary, to your astonishment, my dear Martha, who got it right, who's doing the right thing. She who in your view is doing nothing, is doing the right thing. But one thing is needful in Mary, hath chosen that good part. Here we glimpse the imperative of human freedom. That the coming of Christ sets us free. Not that it sets us free of the factoidal trivia of the routine of social life and its expectations. To be anxious about much serving or many things. Anxious and troubled. So Mary is not anxious and is not troubled. 
Mary has divested herself with an ease, with an insouciance, which Martha finds irritating. Get up and get into the kitchen and start slinging hors d'oeuvres. God is concerned that we be free not only of the large, brooding anxieties in our life, but even from hors d'oeuvres. God is interested down to the last detail because, in fact, he's right. It is precisely those hors d'oeuvres of our days and nights that distract us from him. Thou art anxious and troubled about many things. He could have well have said, you're distracted. You're driven to, as we would say in English, driven to distraction by all this, this, these hors d'oeuvres. And remember, it's not as if there won't be hors d'oeuvres in this scene. It's just that the gospel knows that everybody in society knows that, and so it doesn't go on, and then they served him, you know, this and that, and followed up with the sushi. That's not the point. There's another thing at work here, and that is decisions. Decisions count, and decisions have consequences. Martha has made a decision, in a sense, except that she would say, with great truth, the decision has been made for her by a society which at that time, at the time of this scene, is thousands of years old and knows how to receive a guest into your nomadic tent. And now that we're not nomads living in tents, but living in settled cities and villages in Israel, we still keep, and so forth. The whole laws and rules of the guest culture, which function so, so powerfully, not only among the Hebrews, but as you know very well from uh, ancient history 101 and reading Homer, amongst the pagans as well, and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Chaldeans and the rest of them, the Chinese and the Japanese and the American Indians, for heaven's sakes. Mary would seem to be breaking some fairly uh, powerful rules here, rules and regulations. Mary would seem to be ill-mannered within a society in which manners have theological significance. So it, she isn't just breaking the rules of, uh, of uh, the hors d'oeuvres, but far more seriously is suggesting that she doesn't she either doesn't know what to do with a guest, which is a theological problem, or that she doesn't recognize who is Christ and his significance to this family of three siblings, whose parents apparently have died since we never see or hear of them. They don't know how to behave. So Christ is saying that she made the right decision. And now we have to look at 
Mary's decision. Martha's decision was handed to her by thousands of years of the training of females. Mary sees that Christ is at the door and welcomes him in for sure. Christ, for sure, we can be certain, is sitting with Lazarus because the males are seated. They are made comfortable. They will soon be fed and given drink. And Mary joins them. Here is Christ. I must be with him. Isn't it that simple? Here is Christ. I must be with him. Peter and James and John on Mount Tabor at the Transfiguration will say to the Savior, it is good for us to be here, to be with you. And it's quite clear that they don't understand anything. They don't understand what is going on. They can't uh, evaluate it. They can't interpret it. They couldn't explain it to somebody if you held a gun at their head. What they understand is that it is good to be with Christ. Mary understands that simple primordial fact of life on this planet. And we are not a God-forsaken planet. God forsakes nothing. We are a God-forsaking planet. It is from our side. But she does not forsake the Lord to go to the pantry to get the hors d'oeuvres and the drinks and so forth. She sits at his feet. Where else could she be? Christ comes into your home and sits down in one of your rooms and you run out of the room to get him something? (laughs) Something is being misunderstood here. (laughs) Christ is present, the rules go out the window. I am with Christ. She points to to the radical freedom that is essential if you and I are to be near our Savior, to be seated at his feet. Now, why is this taken And it is taken, as you know, out of context because the Gospel of Luke that we always read at the Feast of the Virgin Mary is not sequential. We take two different scenes from two different parts and we put them together, we sandwich them together as if they were one continuous narrative. They are not. The Holy Fathers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who construct our liturgical life, which means that every syllable of it counts, is fraught with significance. The Holy Fathers wanted to bring to bear on our apprehension of the Theotokos the story of Martha and Mary, the story of human freedom played out in a very humble, homely, and everydayly circumstance. Because Mary is the new Eve. Our first mother Eve preferred handcuffs to freedom. The handcuffs of her own 
curiosity and of her own lust for food. She ate her way out of paradise, beguiled, put in a state of delusion, priljest, as the Russians say, plani in Greek, uh, by the suggestion of the evil one. She was not free to reject evil advice. She was not free enough to see the devil for what he was and to spit on him. So we see that the Virgin Mary, the Most Holy Theotokos, has everything to do with freedom. As the new Eve, she says yes to God, as the first mother said no. And she had to be radically free within herself to say that. The second part of the Gospel is equally crucial to our understanding, our uh, viewing of the icon that the Virgin Mary constitutes in the life of the Church, which is a little abstract in the personal life, above all the prayer life, the personal spirituality of every Christian or of each one of us in this monastery. Christ is moving through the usual crowded, thronging Middle Eastern mob. He's going from A to B. And a woman's voice is heard from the crowd uh, bringing down on his head a traditional Semitic blessing. Someone has said, oh look, there goes Jesus of Nazareth. And it's at the phase where the reputation is very sweet in Israel, very good, many followers. The big controversies have not begun. And she said, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps thou hast sucked. And he said, Yea, rather blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. For our Protestant-based culture, that is always seen as Christ putting down his mother. In the Church Catholic, it has never been misinterpreted in that sense, because that constitutes an egregious misinterpretation. What he is doing is pointing to the actual significance of the Theotokos. Yea, rather blessed are they who hear and keep the Word of God. Who heard the Word of God? The Virgin Mary at the feast that we badly call Annunciation, which we should be calling the Evangelization, the Evangelismos, the Evangelization of the Theotokos. The Archangel Gabriel comes bearing the Word of God to her. She hears the Word of God and she keeps it. Be it unto me according to thy word. That's her significance. Womb and paps aside, the real significance is just there. She hears, she keeps. These, both of these things are critical. If you and I are, and I will say it 
bluntly, to recover the lost power of the Virgin Mary in the individual lives as well as in the community of the faithful. And it is imperative, it is an assignment from the Church, it is central to adult Christian education that you and I look at this Gospel of Luke that we always read at all the feasts of the Virgin Mary, that we read it, that we study what we read, that we then, having read it so well that we have placed it in our noose, the mind of our heart, that we meditate and contemplate this extraordinary gospel. Because while it is about the Virgin Mary, it is for you. When we are prostrating ourselves before the saints, we are doing it because they have something to do with our lives. A man who is in a prostration constitutes a bridge. He is building bridges out of himself. From the saint into his own forlorn, bleak life, so frequently feeling that we are cornered by the circumstances of our personal situation and circumstances, that we are just painted into a corner. No exit, no bridge to get off the prison island. These, these themes of freedom, even from uh, the uh, expected and from our point of view uh, as seculars, uh, these uh, morally and doctrinally neutral uh, acts like receiving a guest in your home, as Martha and Mary in the Gospel are receiving the Lord. Freedom is not just from the big things, it's from the little things as well. Chains may have great big links, they may have little teeny-weeny links. They're still chains. It takes bigger links to chain our flesh. You should know by now it doesn't take a chain of large links to chain your mind, your emotions, your feelings. How wondrous is this feast itself, the Feast of the Entrance, the Sodikon. This is the feast of entering into the temple. The Church has never implied in any way that we must believe that on the third birthday certain things happen. The feast is iconic in character. And yes, there is an historic structure to the feast, which is good. The three-year-old child must be explained 
Where does this freedom to say yes to God that Christ refers to in this exchange with the anonymous female voice, blessed is the womb that bear thee, and all of that, where does this freedom to hear the word of God and freedom to keep it, the freedom to say yes to God, to become the new Eve, the mother of the new creation, where does this freedom come from? How do you explain it? Not for nothing, not without significance, is it explained first and foremost as the birth, the nativity of the Theotokos, another one of the great Marian feasts, that it is the overcoming of barrenness. Her birth flies in the face of human sterility. of Jyoti Manana. And then, she is brought to the temple at the age of three. The temple which is the heart of Israel. The place where the services are going around the clock. Where Israel sacrifices to God, to Yahweh, in the only way possible to it, in a way that is, yes, barbaric, savage, that is bloody. The slaughtering of birds and animals without number every day and throwing the carcasses onto a, a pyre to be burnt up. It's a bloody mess. If you've ever been in an actual butcher's shop, not Safeway, but a real one, you know what the temple smelled like. And the same was true for the pagans. <coughs> so she enters into all of that, that place of sacrifice. Sacrifice, the term comes from the Latin sacrum facere, to make holy. All sacrifice is designed to render holy that which is Sacrifice and that which is sacrificing. The sacrificed and the sacrificer. Israel's effort, which is just about to be abolished in Christ, is to make itself holy by offering the first and the best of the flock, of the uh, household, whatever. The tithe. And little Mary, at the age of three, is led by a dancing troupe of little girls bearing candles. Look at the icon of the feast to see how uh, the church visualizes this. And it says that she danced with her feet as she enters. The Theotokos dances her way into the heart of Israel, its temple on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And there she lives a life with the blessing of the high priest who miraculously understands that although this again breaks rules, it is the will of God, and she is fed with manna by angels. The reference back to the wandering of Israel on the eve 
of receiving the old law on Sinai. That long desert fast. And she will emerge, as you know, to be betrothed to the older Joseph. This feast of entrance gives us the way the Church from its Judaic roots understands how freedom was gradually composed within the personality of the Virgin Mary. Her complete immersion into the liturgical life of the Church of the Old Israel. Centered in the Psalms. And what is the heart of Christian worship in the Church today? The Psalms. And what are we constantly reading, both in our cells and in the uh, temple? The Psalms. In the early uh, years of monasticism, a monk was never tonsured before he had memorized them. He didn't need to be literate. Men were hearing with their ears and just learning because they weren't literate. Their memory banks were very powerful. When you could recite the Psalter by heart, you could be a monk. That is no longer the case, but we need to remember that it has been the case. It is a norm and criterion that is permanent in its value even if we do not memorize the Psalter. And we could memorize the Psalter, though it would be far more difficult for us than for the illiterate and simple people of the past. What a feast is this feast of entrance. Almost we are looking at it as if we were part of a crowd watching these dancing girls with candles, dancing with their feet into the temple. And we feel, I'm so far from that. I'm so far from being able to, uh, in a, as, as some people would like to sentimentalize, we must join the Virgin as she enters the temple. Oh, how nice. I'm sure that Hallmark cards could do something with that. No, I think in a mature and adult way we must say quite faithfully and honestly, probably most of our days, we cannot join that dance. And that is our sadness. Just as going through a dry-eyed Holy Week is a great sadness for us and a judgment on us. Because when we are judged, we are judged together with all humanity. We are going to be judged standing next to a person who has spent his life in tears before the Lord. What then will be our excuse? This glorious feast, this beautiful feast, this wondrous feast, this feast that truly, in its iconic way, explains everything. There is so much in this feast for us to meditate and contemplate. May God grant us both the wisdom and the courage to face this feast and then to look within ourselves and to say, God doesn't want me to be spending my time preparing the hors d'oeuvres for the visiting Christ in the household of Martha and Mary. He wants me to dance my way into the heart of Israel. Lord have mercy. What an assignment.
What a responsibility. Amen.